Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi and welcome to our ninth session of Islamic Book Reviews with myself Adami, and yes indeed and uh, my colleague at the University of Edinburgh Amr and Shasi and uh, this is basically as you will hopefully know by now um, a an opportunity for me to speak to Omar and ask him about what he's been reading lately uh, he has a habit of reading a lot and it's my way of uh, and hopefully your way of getting a cheat sheet to sort of uh, know about a lot of the literature that is just coming out and we've not had the time to turn to yet and so we're very grateful to Omar for his time this week's book is actually um, Fosia Bora's um, uh, important uh, intervention in looking at medieval history um, writing history in the medieval Islamic world the value of chronicles as archives and uh, it's fresh off the press I think it came out last year possibly uh, so it, it year? came out uh, somewhat exceptionally for our series in 2019 okay. but the paperback edition came out very recently just in 2021 uh, which That's made fantastic. it you know put it within my range as a purchase of books as it were as I as I say we, we usually have a particular format where almost starts by giving a brief presentation on the book um, and then I engage in a conversation with him and in a sense pick his brain about sort of aspects of the book and as ever please feel free to join with your comments and and with your questions um, you can do that in the chat on Facebook and on YouTube uh, and we will get them uh, and we'll try to respond to them in the last 15 minutes or so of the of the broadcast so uh, please take us away inshallah with this yes by way of preface I preface I should say I do have a habit of listening to the broadcast after it goes out and I always pick up certain omissions and errors and uh, you know I have locked down a brain so in the last session you know I will contradict myself I, I in the last session I referred to Al-Jawaini as a Shafi'i and I referred to him as Al-Azali these are of course distinct persons so uh, I, I beg the, the listeners their charity uh, but, but anyway I think, I think... I think we all understand uh, sort of extempore discussion is going to have those sorts of things. And you very kindly add in the comments very often in, in YouTube. Those of us, um, you know, if you want to watch the replay, YouTube is probably the most convenient spot. And Omar, yes. <laughs> I was about to say, radiallahu anka, um, always uh, is very kind to, uh, is very kind and, and adds comments there. Yeah, so any, any readings, by the way, we refer to important articles and things. I also post the references. Uh, but uh, to, to, to proceed, this is a fascinating book, uh, theoretically sophisticated, and the focus, you could say, although it has broad implications for the field, is on uh, uh, the author Ibn al-Furat, a uh, muhaddith historian and uh, witness uh, notary, uh, who dies in 1405, so he operates in, in, in Mamluk, Egypt. And his history, Tariq al-Dual wal Muluk. The interesting thing about this history is it is mostly lost, but a few volumes remain. I think the, the original would have been around 100 volumes uh, for the estates, uh, of which there are uh, some extent, and the collection which is scattered all over the world. Uh, it is, uh, as was very popular in that context, a world history that takes one all the way from creation until the author's day, uh, of which the uh, 
period from creation to the early Islamic uh, period is extant, as well as uh, the chronicle from the years, uh, I think, 501 to 799 of the Hijrah. And it is a unicum copy, so there's only one of these uh, remaining bits of it. Uh, and most of the this, uh, two, two series, so this first series taking you to early Islamic history, and then the second part uh, extant, uh, housed mostly in Vienna, uh, which covers um, the, the later years. And in particular, uh, Fozia is interested in exploring the value of Ibn al-Furat's uh, chronicle as a kind of uh, multi-layered source, if you like. So the, the title of, the, or the subtitle of the book, The Value of Chronicles is Archives. Yes, it is a, a, a chronicle in, in the conventional sense. It is analytic, analytic, uh, analytic. So it is arranged by years, as uh, you know, the case of Tabari's Tarikh and so on. Once you get later into the period, uh, and although it's a unicum and it does not seem to have been copied at all or, or very little, it was widely influential, uh, especially on later Mamluk historians. Uh, and its significance uh, really to modern historians is uh, for the ways in which it preserves early sources about the Fatimids. Uh, so the Fatimids, uh, or the traditional image of the Fatimids, is that they did not really patronize uh, historical learning. There aren't really official um, histories of the Fatimids produced uh, by uh, state-sponsored uh, authors that span the kind of whole range or most of the range uh, of of that dynasty's uh, duration. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Ibn al-Furat does draw on, in, in various kind of semi-official capacities, state servants and others, uh, witnesses to the Fatimid reign, did, did uh, write um, chronicles and things. Now, none of these survive uh, as uh, kind of independent sources. So. Part of Ibn al-Furat's value is that he preserves lost sources. Unlike many other Mamluk historians who discuss the Fatimids, he is very scrupulous in his citation of sources. He almost always indicates where his uh, text is coming from, and he acknowledges the authors. And um, like some Mamluk authors, his approach to the Fatimids is somewhat non-confessional. Uh, so the, the, the archive, if you like, or the, the historiographical voice takes precedent over the sectarian one. Uh, and indeed, you do find other historians in the Mamluk period who, who gave the Fatimids in some sense a fair hearing. Al-Makhrizi, in his work, Ittiad al-Hunafa, uh, and Ibn Khaldun to some extent as well. Uh, and later kind of Mamluk authors like Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani indeed criticize authors like Ibn Khaldun and uh, al-Maqrizi for taking seriously the uh, genealogical claims uh, of the Fatimids. But uh, Ibn al-Furat is crucial because he preserves these early sources and uh, in the book's very extensive appendices, uh, Fosia edits and translates all of the unique material collected uh, by Ibn al-Furat, especially on the later Fatimids of the last century or so of Fatimid rule. The Fatimid dynasty comes to an end in 1171 of the Common Era. And he preserves around 40 reports or clusters of reports on the Fatimids, around uh, 
55% of which is unique material not found in, in, in other sources. So, as I said, a theoretically sophisticated work that uh, makes us um, or poses all kinds of questions about you know, the binary between narrative versus documentary sources. He preserves many uh, documents and historians kind of often uh, make this distinction between supposedly unreliable narrative sources and, you know, documents, which are the, re you know, the real thing, as it were, of history that allow us to reconstruct what really happened to use this, this Rankian phrase. Right. Thank you very much, Amar. Um, and I mean, I think uh, one of the um, interesting and valuable things in this text is also that it's bringing out this figure who is largely unknown. Um, she kind of situates him, if I recall correctly, in the introduction, she talks about the the knowledge um, we have about someone like Ibn Khaldun, who's very, very well known, you know, by contemporary historians. I apologize about my, my son's noise in the background. This is life. <laughs> Occasionally that might sort of jump in, but I'm just sort of wondering in terms of, um, you know, you, you described his work as a unicum, but at the same time, and, and suggested that it's not been copied a great deal, but at the same time you've, you're saying that it's very influential. Um, how on earth does that happen? <laughs> very interesting. So uh, Ibn al-Furat dies in 1405. Uh, he finishes his history, I think, in mid-1401. And after his death, his son sells it. And, you know, based on the, the, the Vienna copy, which uh, in most of the second series, the second part of the extant bits are, are housed in Vienna, we have ownership marks and various things. So, you know, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani certainly drawn it. Sahawi, uh, Ibn Tulun, and, and other, you know, major historians, especially of, of Egypt. So it's... Um, I, hopefully not entirely, uh, well, hopefully it's apt, but he's historically speaking a kind of eminence grease. He's there behind the scenes. You don't, do not see him. And one of the reasons you do not see him is even when he cited verbatim, he's often not acknowledged, usually not acknowledged, in fact, as, as the author. Uh, and hmm. he draws on, I think, the, the number is 12. But you're saying... Yeah. Forgive me, you're saying his uh, his oeuvre was about a hundred volumes, potentially? Well, this particular historical work, right. uh, and, Tariq and, and, and um, muluk I mean, I, I suppose this would fall under the sort of, um, you know, practices of copying in the medieval era. But I would have thought that by this time, I mean, one thinks of um, Suyuti's plagiarism charges. I mean, by this time, those sensibilities were present and people would be complaining if they weren't cited properly or... Yes, well, this is a, an excellent question. I think one the, the book does bring to mind, there still hasn't been a serious treatment of the notion of plagiarism in Islamic culture. Now, Joel Bletcher in his book, Said the Prophet of God has a kind of really interesting uh, series of comments, especially in the context of the rivalry between Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani and Al-Aini and their respective commentaries on Sahih al-Bukhari. And he also discusses Suyuti, who, you know, rebutted these charges of plagiarism. <clears throat> but, you know, besides every now and then you come across claims in scholarship, like, well, medieval Muslims did not have, you know, a, a notion of plagiarism. This is, this is false. But, you know, the contours of this idea, what exactly it meant, and so on, is, is still very much unclear. It deserves serious scholarly treatment, you know, a monograph or a long paper. Now, 
there's been a lot of, uh, many articles have been written on the phenomenon of seriqa or literary theft in poetry, specifically, you know, Wolfhard Heinrichs and others have written uh, important articles on this, but not much on, you know, specifically religious literature, even though hmm. any, any of us, you know, whether it's the work of Ibn al-Furat, you know, he cites multiple sources, I, I think um, uh, 12 uh, main ones when he focuses on this period of Fatimid history, four of whom are Fatimid authors, and then you have some Ayyubid authors and, and other earlier Mamluk authors, including Ibn uh, Khaliqan. Right. But um, often, you know, most of the material in a text will be citation, mm. uh, copying verbatim from other sources. Now, what, what does that do for mm. our sense of you know, ideas like originality, creativity? Um, because clearly, uh, as, as many scholars have pointed out, you, know, you can express creativity and originality through... Uh, you know, selection, Ibn al furat includes some sources and amidst others through organization, uh, you know, the use of uh, alphabetization, the use of, you know, calling attention to specific features of a text through hmm. putting them in a particular place um, and so on. I remember in uh, Marlon Swartz's edition and translation of Ibn al-Jawzi's Kitab al-Qusas al-Mudakkirin, he doesn't give a percentage, but he says, you know, less than a quarter of that text if you look at the word count, is actually the, the words of Ibn al-Jawzi himself. It's the rest of it is artfully arranged and selected, yeah. So it's artfully arranged, but it's not even necessarily cited explicitly? Is that, I mean... Well, you know, um, citation very often, practices... Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, this is, you're right that this deserves a study because um, I feel like I'm sort of perhaps asking the wrong questions in some cases. Um, one thinks in hadith studies, for example, um, I've heard of the expression sarqatul hadith, the notion of narrating a hadith which you do not actually have a legitimate isnad for. Um, yes. I think certain people would have considered types of wujada to be sarqatul hadith at certain points in Islamic history. Um, yes, and hopefully but, we will have an episode on, on Garrett Davidson's very important book. Right, right, right. Now, the, um, the thing to bear in mind is, you know, processes of certification and Jesuit culture. And so all of this was important, of course. It's, it's, it's kind of purpose shifted, especially after the Asr of Ruwaya, when all of this material was in circulation, being documented right. in written form. Right. Right. But at the same time, uh, you know, in practice, certainly by the Mamluk period when Ibn Furat is writing, uh, this had a largely, uh, if you like, symbolic. symbolic. Yeah, yeah. Function. I mean, it, it was for barakah and so on. And I mean, yes. I liked. Uh, we're we're varying slightly, of course, but the notion of ijazali ahli zaman and things like this. So, um, but that's in hadith studies. I think with respect to history, I mean, one would have thought tarikh is a kind of cognate discipline of um, hadith studies, but it looks to me uh, as someone who's not necessarily a specialist of chronicles of those periods that it really came uh, became a tradition of its own with its own sort of like norms um, yes but, so but you're, you're right to point to the connection between hadith studies and history and Tarif Khalid in his book on Islamic historiography does kind of make this connection think of early sources right. like Ibn Sa'd you know right. this is uh, and he was kind of concerned with, with documenting hadith yes, but by the book. time we're looking at Fozia's um, sort of like uh, the book, uh, her, the the period that her book is concerned with, it seems that you're saying um, that kind of citation is not happening. In a sense, Ibn al-Furat's um, sort of documentation of certain activities at a certain period of time are 
kind of eyewitness accounts which do not need to be cited as eyewitness accounts of Ibn al-Furad, but rather these are reports of what was happening there. And I mean, like this is tarikh, it doesn't have the sort of stakes of yes. law, and therefore we can sort of just engage in yes. what, what is anachronistically being called plagiarism by, you know, yes. anachronistically calling plagiarism. But Ibn al-Furat is unusual in the, the extent, as she mentioned, it's been recognized for decades now. Uh, by, by, by historians of the uh, Fatimid period in particular, the, the, his carefulness in citing sources in attributing them to their authors and in preserving uh, you know, documentary sources. Now, historians, I should make this important point, yeah. often privilege in good, you know, positivistic fashion, uh, documentary over narrative sources, say a, you know, yeah. a document of some kind, the text received something, or a chant, and think of these great men book, chancery manuals, uh, letter writing and so on, uh, from uh, state, state chanceries and archives. They privilege these over narrative history. And Ibn al-Furat in some sense disrupts the binary. Now, before the Ottoman period uh, in particular, uh, the great majority of documents, uh, she says, although we do come across caches like the Haram al-Sharif documents and others in the Mamluk period, uh, most documents do not survive independently. As Thomas Bauer says, they're given a kind of second life because they survive in these chronicles, in these narrative sources, in other words. Mm -hmm. So there is an inter interesting kind of dialectic and, and interplay in this relationship between, uh, you know, narrative sources and and the documentary ones. Um, and right, right. Ibn al-Furat, I should say, lives, or certainly towards the end of his life, in this extraordinary period I remember in a previous session, Osama, you were making this comment on, uh, you know, how one envisions Islam, and mm. certainly Mamluk era scholars to play a huge role today in how many Muslims approach 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 right. uh, this, right. uh, and and they do play this oversized role now, you know, because the post classical period hasn't been studied post classical in the sense Ahmed al-Shamsi uses it, uh, you know, yeah. after the 15th century, really the Ottoman period in, in places like Egypt. Uh, you know, we can't we can't be absolutely sure this is the case, but it seems that I mean the Mamluk period, especially 14th and 15th centuries, was uh, the site of an unprecedented efflorescence in a range of fields, particularly hadith uh, and and commentary on hadith and so on, but also in terms of historiography. And if I could make this point just before you intervene, sure, sure, sure. Uh, she cites. Um, uh, a recent historian is saying th this was a remarkable, you know, I really stopped and paused and scratched mm. my head when I read the statement. There is more history, geography, uh, and other kinds of writings produced in the first half of the 15th century, so 1400 to uh, 15, uh, so to 1450, the period in which uh, Ibn al-Furad dies, yeah. in that half century than any other half century until uh, basically the 19th century. So a huge literary production, partly because of, you know, extensive Mamluk patronage. Um, she, there's a kind of bi bibliomania in the Mamluk period and an encyclopedism also for now, and she discusses, and of course, Elias Mohan has, has so, discussed sorry, this. Um, who did you say after Peters? Uh, can you just say those names again? <laughs> I missed them. So, uh, yes. <laughs> so uh, there, there was a kind of real bibliomania, bibliomania, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
as in this you know very mamluk phenomenon of encyclopedism right so elias mohenna has written a, an important book on this phenomenon right, right, right. On which gets cited who's a 14th century figure dies in, in the 1330s i believe of the right. common era uh, but uh, these kinds of practices so ibn al-furat is part of that environment um a kind of you could say there's a fetish almost for the written word and as part of this encyclopedic culture you know remember his, his history is 100 volumes or so in its original version right. he wants to kind of document everything and you know as part of this endeavor he preserves so many sources great for us because so many of them no longer exist right. independently is, is this the era that also produces you know uh, connections like subh al-asha um, precisely right. yes right. so uh, our friend Al-Qalqashandi features a couple of times in this book. Right. And uh, if you can think of another, well, encyclopedias of various kinds, Subh al-Asha is really a chancery manual, you know, how to produce official documents and so on. Right. So it pr right. preserves many examples of these, you know, appointment decrees for judges and this sort of very fascinating material, useful to social historians. And this kind of enriches our archive, if you like, when approaching this period. Right. But also, um, Things like uh, you know Ibn Ibn Fadlullah Al Amari or Al Nawawi. I mean, these are really encyclopedic works meant to right. kind of fill you in on what you should know, really, if you're an educated, uh, refined I mean, uh, gentleman. Elias uh, puts it uh, in in his book, "The World in a Book," right? <laughs> yes, so, precisely. Yeah, yes, and um, um, I I wanted to just briefly comment on I mean um, the remark you made, which is fascinating um, that. The amount of history produced in the first half of the 15th century kind of dwarfs anything that came after it and you or indeed before or indeed before fascinating and and you you sort of referenced also the um, i mean you said that i had commented how you know our vision of islam is i i'm of course drawing on ahmed shamsi's conception uh you know not conception but the way in which he has brought to light uh the extent to which our perception of what Islam is, is shaped by these sort of um, choices by certain invisible actors. And in a sense, I think, um, just by the sheer literary production of the Mamluk era, and the Mamluk era is, of course, far vaster than that. You know, you, you go back to people um, like um, Ibn Taymiyyah, Al-Dhahabi, and, you know, these great encyclopedists, Al-Dhahabi being a, a classic case of that and um, later on Ibn Hajar and, and so on. And you think, you know, we think of the Mamluk, our conception of Islam is shaped by all of these people writing in the Mamluk era so often, right? Um, and the power of the word sort of has a hold over us, I think, um, to this day. Yes, I mean, period. partly so many works extend from that period because it's relatively recent uh, compared right. to us, unlike 8th and 9th century Baghdad. Uh, but uh, there is also the, the kind of dimension, Suyuti, who is often said to be the most prolific author uh, in, in so apparently, Islam. Apparently he said um, uh, about his own older contemporary, Al-Biqai, that he was, high, uh, he was more prolific than I was. But I guess there's a question of chronology. When did he say that? Yeah. <laughs> right. But I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a consideration that uh, if you want to defeat your opponents outright, then <laughs> Suyuti suddenly did. But uh, to, to return to the book, yeah. uh, so 
not only is this kind of stuff in the air, this culture of encyclopedism and tendency towards comprehensiveness, and uh, something Ahmed al-Shamsi also talks about, the preservation of texts in, in other in other texts, in the kind of where the biographical dictionaries or what have you. And he gives the example of, um, uh, well, we can think of an example. So uh, in Tabakat al-Shafi'iyya right. of Ibn uh, of the Subki, he preser- you know, preserves works that are otherwise lost to us. You know, whole treatises, dozens of pages mm-hmm. uh, in length. Uh, and... Uh, Ibn al-Furat is, is kind of a part of this culture, but, you know, mm. par excellence, if you like. Right, 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 right. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I think uh, the example that Ahmed gives, if I recall correctly, is Usul um, al-Tafsir uh, of Ibn Taymiyyah being preserved entirely in, apparently, the Sharh of the Ihya of um, Zabidi. She seems to, if I recall yes, correctly, I mean, um, yeah, it would be a bit... I, I'm aware... I'm aware there's a scholar, gosh, I can't remember if it's Ayan Post or someone else, who's actually writing on the textual history of the um, uh, of Usul uh, al-Tafsir, if you like. I mean, it's also uh, cited, I mean, I don't believe it's it's uh, cited in its entirety, but it's cited without attribution in Ibn Kathir's introduction to his tafsir. Right, right. right. Uh, so, you know, multiple, multiple means of preserving. And of course, we can also study, you know, why was it printed in the 20th century and what were the choices that kind of right, led right, to this? Right. It's come up in many, many editions. Um, right. But, um, and as well as encyclopedism, you have what Fosia calls the, the kind of archival mentality. Hmm. Uh, you know, not only the instinct to preserve, but this, you know, citation of, of documentary sources. So he, in some sense, he straddles the, this binary between narrative and uh, and archival sources. So she, she uh, actually so, sort of spends a little time on on the theory of the archive, so to speak, and thinking about exactly what an archive is in a way that you know, as someone who's not um, familiar with that um, tradition of scholarship, it, it kind of gave me a different um, perception or perspective on what exactly an archive is meant to be. Now, I wonder yes. if you would like to talk a little bit about that. Yes, so she draws especially on, on post-structuralist theory and she uses terms like archivality and there's an, an explanation of these uh, in, in the early part of the book. Right. Uh, but the archive should not be thought of primarily as a space. Right. Uh, we're thinking, especially when it comes to Ibn al we're thinking of ar- archivality and the archive as a kind of practice. Right. Uh, so think also of, uh, you know, Brinkley Messick's uh, book, which me we we may wish to do an episode on the, the the more recent one. Uh, but anyway, he kind of also appeals to this terminology uh, of of the archive. Um, I I have to say the the kind of post structural series is a bit of a, a blind spot for me to put it mildly. And and yes, uh, but it, it does it does enrich the analysis and in, in my view it does right. does help her to drive her argument forward. Right, right. And in particular, um, I, I wanted to particularly sort of highlight the so her subtitle um, is you know value of chronicles as archives, and um, so I'm assuming that archive here is being used in somewhat um, this post-structural post-structuralist sense that you've put forward, um, but in a sense. Um, what what can we get out of chronicles in this way? Um, in a you know by picking on Ibn al-Furat, I think it's a little um, counterintuitive for me because we've lost so much of it. 
Um, I don't know how much of it is extant in the Unicum, um, but in, so in what two kind way of can sections, it be drawn on? But most of it is lost. Right, right. Uh, in what way um, could uh, a chronicle in this way be used as an archive um, for modern researchers, for example? Yes, yeah, so Ibn al-Furat specifically, um, I suppose because he preserves uh, all of these lost sources, um, uh, you know, a large, um, a large volume of which is, is unique. Uh, so right. we have voices or we hear voices in his chronicle that we do not uh, find elsewhere, including uh, authors in the Fatimid period who are, you know, witnesses to the events uh, they describe. So it's a kind of cacophony of voices uh, again, which, which he permits to speak. Um, but yes, yeah, so... And you highlighted that, you know, um, he was noteworthy, and Ibn Khaldun as well, for not being um, overly ideological in their portrayal of the Fatimid sources. Um, I mean, uh, and, and you said Ibn Hajar actually objected to this. And I, I wonder if you could sort of um, explain a little yes. like, that dynamic. So... What makes... Uh, because I've also commented in the past about, you know, the challenges of objectivity in some yes, sense. But, you know, what is it? Well, I mean, I, you know, yeah. I, I think... I, I should say part of the kind of one of the broader points the books make, drawing on the post-structural theories, in trying to kind of undermine or at least complicate this idea that the documentary source is objective, narrative source is bad, if you like. Right. Uh, but she notes, for instance, that Ibn al-Furat, although he does refer to them as Ben Abay, uh, well... So the, the ones who accept the Fatimid's genealogical claims I mentioned right. were Ibn Khaldun and Al-Maqridzi, uh, specifically in Iti'ad al-Hanafa. So I, I do not believe right. uh, Ibn al-Furat accepts them. So he refers to them as Ben Ubaid, which is the kind of derogatory, you're not actually Fatimid's guy's way of addressing right. them. Um, why why does Ibn, Ibn Khaldun do this? And remember their peers, Ibn Khaldun dies in 1406. Uh, Ibn al-Furat dies in 1405. Makhrizi is the student of Ibn Khaldun. So this is the kind of relationship. Um, Ibn Khaldun says in the Muqaddimah, so it's a kind of methodological point, well, they wouldn't really have been able to gather all of these followers and be so successful in Egypt where their genealogical claim baloney, to to put it as Americans would. So he, he expresses a kind of methodological skepticism, and he, make, he kind of makes bigger points off the back of this. Now, mm. there's been a lot of debate in the historiogra- uh, historiography about, and then the modern literature, uh, Al-Maqrizi specifically, because it's sometimes claimed incorrectly, Fosia states right. that he was in fact a descendant of the Fatimids, and as it were, was defending his, his forebears. Uh, but, uh, you know, Suddenly, an author like Ibn al-Furati refers to them as caliphs mm-hmm. and as as uh, as imams. Not to say that he recognizes the legitimacy of these claims, uh, but he refrains from using charged terminology like malahida or you know heretics. Right. Yes. Um, that and you know, a, a couple of uh, Mamluki authors in particular, because you know we're primarily dependent on Mamluk authors when when doing Fatimid history, there are some Ayyubids as well, of course. Right. Um, you find these kind of diverse trends. Some uh, are um, condemnatory in tone, uh, right. but others uh, regard the Fatimids as having in some sense put Egypt on the map, and uh, they, they do celebrate uh, some of the achievements of the Fatimids. These, these are all Sunni authors uh, you know, we're, we're talking about. Fascinating. 
Fascinating. I mean, um, I wasn't aware of um, what might be perceived as somewhat adulatory sort of um, takes on the on the Fatimids, especially since um, they were seen as such a threat by the Abbasids, of course. But I guess yes. this is centuries later in retrospect and saying, well, they didn't really sort of like ultimately do that and they're not very important anymore. So now we can yes, talk about so them with a certain degree of distance and, and not, yes, not now threatened by them. Yeah. There is a kind of black legend of the Fatimids, if you like, and I know there's a, an excellent thesis on this, uh, whose name I will post in the in the comments for the video, on Fatimid traditions of learning under the Fatimids, and especially what happened to the Malikis, and then your know, chains of authority and teaching practices and so on under the Fatimids. Right. There's a kind of black legend of the Fatimids. Sorry. Ibn Abi Zayd al Khairawani comes to mind, you know, as this as this figure who sort of lived in yeah, so, the Fatimid Egypt, yeah. Well, he's quite well, well, I mean, no, he's, the, yeah. Sorry, this, I'm, I'm mixing up uh, states, aren't I? Um, that's, that's fine. But, <laughs> but um, <laughs> now, you know, there is this legend that they put, and there would, would have been, I imagine, some persecution of Sunni ulama, but for, the, for right. the most part, they, the population was left as it was. Some debate right. about whether or not in different periods of Fatimid history, Sunni judges were appointed. Mm. Uh, but, for instance, uh, some of our important early sources on mm. the Fatimids, those who actually wrote uh, on, you know, on the, in the Fatimid period, often they were servants of the state. And people like Al-Qudai, she mentions the Shafi'i, who was a servant of the Fatimid state and wrote this important historical work, which partly commemorates them. Uh, and sometimes the, the Fatimid authors, their, their confessional identity is not straightforward or clear. So there were, uh, you know, the authors on the Fatimid period that Ibn al-Furad draws on, mainly, you know, Egyptian and Syrian, uh, particularly Egyptian, but some, some Syrian as well. Um, hmm. It's not always clear. Some of them were 12 Shia, others may or may not have been Sunni. And I mean, there's even a debate about the, the, the religious identity, which I find kind of odd as a non-specialist of Al-Qadi Nu'man himself, hmm. uh, the kind of chief judge of the Fatimids and the guy who... Yeah. It's not too much of an exaggeration to say built single-handedly the edifice right, of Fatimid right, law. Right, right. You know, Da'am al-Islam and many, many other works which are of right. huge importance to Ismaili communities, the, the Buhras, uh, certainly to this day. Uh, and that's that's uh, that's interesting. Uh, so, and, I mean, uh, I, I want to sort of, and this is perhaps a digression I should have suggested much earlier on in this session, but... Um, in a sense, uh, like, can you give us an idea of the period, the rise of the Fatimids, um, in very sort of like skeletal form? Uh, yes. They, they <laughs> like, come, I'll, I'll sort of take my own sort of attempt as someone who's not a specialist in that period. But I mean, I think of the Fatimids as coming about, um, you know, uh, in a sense, um, in their earlier periods, when they were suddenly a strong um, state and they were doing their work, etc. Um, they were a threat to the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, you know, mm -hmm. we're thinking Mawardi, Juwaini, um, Al-Ghazali, their kind of responses to this. And But later on, they kind of, um, in a sense, are really affected by the Crusades, which start up around, um, you know, uh, during Ghazali's later life, so to speak. Um, and thereafter, the rise of Salah al-Din al-Ayyubi um, as a sort of um, a scion of um, 
forgive me, my, my history is kind of, but Nuruddin Zengi is coming from a, you know, a different kind of clan and family and so on. But in a sense, these people come and Saladin Ayubi basically comes and uh, vanquishes yes. the Fatimids and of course takes the Azhar and <laughs> converts all of these sorts of things. The Azhar yes. was established by the Fatimids. So yeah. we're talking about a period which is not immensely long that they were yeah. in power. And there were plenty of Sunnis living in Egypt at that time, and it wasn't really my well, understanding. The majority of the Muslim population, and you have a debate about where, when exactly Egypt became majority Muslim. Some would not date that until the Mamluk period, as in the work of Ibn like he's had, had some discussion of this. But yes, the Fatimids kind of emerged uh, with a kind of state power, if you like, in. And uh, forgive me, just one, one more point, so, which is that they were relatively sort of easygoing with having all of these sort of non-Fatimids. Um, they they didn't necessarily, my impression is they didn't necessarily impose that, uh, you know, setting aside their geopolitical aims and their desire to sort of be a counter-caliphate to Sunni, Sun, Sunnism, so to speak. Within their state, they seem to have been largely benign towards the Sunnis. Is that a fair sort of assessment? Well, I mean, you know, they appointed Ismaili judges and of course patronized Ismaili learning set up right. institutions of, of, of higher education and so on. Right, right. right. Uh, I mean, I'm so, really not, not the expert. Right, fair enough, fair enough. We're I also don't want to talk too far from. So they, they emerged in the Maghrib and yeah. um, already, uh, so Al Qadi Naman himself writes what is a very important source in, in the Institute for Ismaili Studies in collaboration with Oxford University Press has edited and translated many of these interesting sources that right. cast a light on, on the Fatimids. Um, so Qadir Naumain writes Iftitah al-Dawah, which is a kind of important early account of the rise of the Fatimids, as it were, and they then uh, transfer to Egypt, which they rule uh, for approximately two, two centuries or so before they're brought to an end by Salah al-Din in, in 1171. Uh, but, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows and the kind of, you know, there are, one thing we ought to emphasize is, uh, you know, the sectarian boundaries of course take time to crystallize but even once right. they have theologically speaking uh, as yeah. indeed this is the case today relations sectarian you could say intersectarian relations are, are a complex phenomenon right uh, and uh, they're amenable to the same kinds of analysis as any other social and, and, and political phenomena something osama maktasi really emphasizes mm -hmm. in his book uh, on the, the the ecumenical frame uh, or Age of Coexistence, uh, anyway, uh, a, a book we should perhaps do, do an episode on. So we don't want to centralize about these sectarian relations as well. Forgive me, Osama Mahdisi's book just came out, I think, right? A year ago or so? Is a year ago or so. Right, right. So, uh, but but so important, I mean, I mean, again, I don't want to depart too much from... Sure, sure. <laughs> I mean, these, these are all, I think, uh, very uh, useful and important sort of ways of thinking about, um, you know, the themes that are addressed in this book. And I think, you know, in a sense, we're grateful for Fazia for allowing us to uh, engage the work in this, um, in this way that allows us to um, branch out to so many other um, dimensions of the ideas that are found within it. Um, yes, so, so as I said, it is a book that does have, have broader implications for the field, for doing history. For ideas of, you know, this binary, binary, for instance, between documentary narrative sources, um, you know, how Ibn al-Furat reflects the the kind of this late Mamluk context, 
right. uh, and how he exemplifies, you know, certain trends within within the writerly culture, if you like, of right. uh, later Mamluk Egypt and, uh, and and this kind of thing. And it's. So, um, I'm, just, I'm just going to um, alert you to the fact that um, we have uh, another sort of 15, 20 minutes, and uh, we we do have some questions, so we'll get to those in a moment. But if you wanted to sort of maybe uh, have some closing thoughts on the book specifically. Yes, um, uh, I mean, there's there's a lot more that could be said, um, but uh, I, it's 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 quite a focused study, right. uh, and she does kind of suggest these broad implications. But really, it's um, a study of uh, you know Ibn Furat and his history and how it so exemplifies archival, to... archival mentality. Yeah. You could say. I'm just wondering, to, um, so how, how is this related to, so Fosia has um, written in the past about the um, uh, sort of libraries of the Fatimids. And uh, I think you, you mentioned that this doesn't figure in any prominent way in this text, but yes. uh, I mean, are there shared themes across the, that work? Absolutely. That... So uh, we should mention uh, Fosia won uh, the Royal Asiatic Society Staunton Prize for uh, her outstanding article on Salah al-Din and the libraries of the Fatimids. What was the traditional narrative with Salah al-Din and the libraries of the Fatimids? You know, he, he destroyed them in one form or another. They were cast into the sea or something like this um, and then disposed of in various ways. Now, if you actually scrutinize the sources, and again, she tracks uh, this cacophony through various uh, Mamluk era chronicles and Ayyubid sources as well, and reveals that actually this isn't what happened. Uh, the books were, you know, claimed and and sold off, and uh, Salah al-Din's Qadil, Qadil Fadil, I think, had a major role, and his library was, you know, he, uh, augmented considerably by these books. So, as with books, which are physical artifacts, you know, physical objects, and uh, you know, they do have a kind of history of their own. Um, right. they, they actually survived, and she makes this point about Ibn al-Furat, right. and then you know chronicles generally. These sources outlived by a radical span of time the institutions that produced them. Mm -hmm. Ibn al-Furat was a preacher and teacher in the Muazziya Madrasa, who is even heard of that these days. Right. You could say, besides right, a few right, right. few historians, and yet his his uh, his his work has endured. Now, again, the the, the parallels are interesting. These texts continue to survive, even though the library itself was dissipated as a kind of right. collective, um, and yet the book survived. So Ibn al-Furat uh, has this similar kind of relationship with all of these sources and documentary right. uh, tidbits that, that he's preserved in his chronicle, and they're given a kind of second life through right. his, his writing them into his chronicle, as it were. And um, I think we have a, a few questions and people can feel free to sort of ask questions, um, you know, more on, on the themes that we've discussed today, uh, drawing on um, Fosia's book. We have uh, questions from a very consistent question of ours, who's a good friend of ours, uh, Jan Islam. So he, he writes first, commenting on our remarks about plagiarism earlier, that, um, you know, there is a fiqh opinion which states that knowledge cannot be stolen um, and in fact the thoughts we produce do not even belong to us um, but like our bodies belong to God in a sense are an amana I suppose and um, I'm 
I'm not familiar with the sort of uh, the latter part, but I, you know, it's fairly sort of normal in the earliest periods of Islam that uh, when there was discussion of ilm, uh, the fuqaha did not consider it to be inappropriate that someone copy a book, right? I mean, this is how transmission of knowledge occurred in those times. I, I guess the question is, how important is attribution, right? I mean, everyone's copying manuscripts out. Nowadays, people are printing en masse and there'll be that little C which says copyright yes. and the attribution is absolutely essential. Yes. But, um, but yes, I mean, uh, if it's a fiqh opinion of Abu Hanifa or Malik, you know, um, and you just say, okay, this is a fatwa from a reliable scholar or it's given by a reliable scholar who's drawing on Malik or uh, Shafi'i or Ahmed, you know, there doesn't yeah, need to so be that kind of... I, it really depends on the context. So, uh, you know, certainly attribution would have been important in contexts like hadith, hadith reporting. Right. And, you know, authentication and, and, and the need for right. you know, proper transmission and, you know, actually having met the, the Rawi and heard hadith from him um, and so on. And partly, as we've seen, because on a very basic level, you know, you need to know how to pronounce words. Correctly, and even in later periods, you know, beyond the fourth century, uh, there are cases of scholars being criticised for having, uh, you know, reported books and discussed or, or what have you without having actually ordered uh, the uh, attended audition sessions. Now, and this is something that comes up quite extensively in Ahmed Shamsi's first book, Canonization of Islamic Law, mm -hmm. um, where he notes, for example, that you know you do you do have your diehard Ijaza folk today. But already in the Mamluk period, he says, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani said, of the whole Shafi'i and corpus, uh, you know, attributed to Shafi'i, yeah. only the, I think he says, the Kitab Jima' al-Ilm and the Risala have kind of had continuous isnads, right, you know, right. leading so up Jima to... So Jima' al-Ilm is very short. The Risala obviously is quite substantial, but Jima' al-Ilm is a tiny book. Yeah, so... You know, most and and in practice, um, mm. you know, with the introduction of paper and this kind of shift from primarily oral to you could say primarily written, although oral and odds continues right. to play. Uh, right. You know, this tra transformation Ahmed Shamsi really elaborates in great detail in his first book. Mm. Uh, you know, the introduction of paper plays, of course, a big part in the shift. Right. Right. Uh, and you know, writing technologies and so on, and radically expands the horizons of literary production. If you like, so you know the Mamluk flourishing or efflorescence of you know historian and, and other and hadith and all of these other genres uh, is of course a function of uh, you know partly the introduction of paper and you have paper coming in from European sources as well. I know there's been some interesting work on on the fatwa you know fatwa of Ibn Marzouk on European paper uh, by by Leo Halavi and and, uh, and so others. How, how that was much later of the European paper phenomenon. No, I mean it's in the in the you know 15th century and so on. Right, right. So I'm, I'm so you know Mamluk uh, later Mamluk era authors are you know uh, or okay. particularly you know places like Venice and so on. Paper is coming from That's these amazing. places across the Mediterranean to Egypt. Right, right, right. So you have an elaborate legal discussion of what do you do That's if there are kind of uh, and you said Leo Halavi talks about this in his um, well specifically the fatwa of Ibn Marzouk, but there there is quite a literature on this. Uh, but I I don't want to kind of get against three from the point too much. So, um, and also you find hadith, you know, condemning Kitman al-ilm, which certainly has been understood even in the modern period uh, to, 
allow one to disregard rules of copyright. Even I was told stories uh, by students uh, or friends and students at the University of Medina and so on that some um, took this opinion so seriously that if they're asked in an examination, what the, you know, what is the ruling on X, Y, Z, or what do you say about X, Y, Z? They would not be able to, you know, restrain themselves because this would constitute kitman uh, al-ilm. So that's that's just an interesting uh, kind of side note. Uh, and I can see Jan is also asking yeah. about a kind of loose understanding. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just read it out if that's all right. So sure. is it possible that the, this loose understanding may explain, meaning a loose understanding towards plagiarism, may explain less stringent rules of citation? Alternatively, we know that people were generous in, quote-unquote, borrowing, so to speak. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's such a big question that, that really hasn't been tackled. I, of course, the kind of copyright issues received extensive discussion by the Majma al-Fiqh and, 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 and so on. In the modern period, sure. In the modern but, period. I mean, in a but, sense, this is such a radical transformation on the pre-modern sort of like tradition and yes. also modern technologies allowing for certain, I mean, over the last 200 years, allowing for this mass production of yes. knowledge. So again, you know, Ahmed Assemsi uh, has discussed this transformation and having a mass availability of printed text means in theory, you know, we have thousands and thousands of copies of more or less identical texts yeah. and you know, without that context, citing page numbers and all, all other kinds of bibliographic practices we now take for granted would not have made yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, and always an important part true, of, yes. that, of literary I mean, practice. I'm just going to highlight that point, if that's all right. Oh, I mean, oh. like, that's that's a, it's an obvious, but it's, it's something which I have a tendency to forget that, you know, if you have a manuscript culture where people are writing out texts, you're not going to have the same page, right? So it's, it makes no sense to cite in that sense. You can, the most you can say is such and such a person said in his book. Um, but, you know, um, I guess there And of course, the different of... copies of books. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, not yeah. that printed editions are without their, their errors uh, and, you know, lists of errata and so on printed in the back. But, um, you know, in scribal cultures, editions of a text might vary, or different manuscripts might vary widely. I mean, it's just been an article came out in December in the Journal of the American Oriental Society that I thank Ahmed Assemsi for allotting uh, me and others to, on the Kitab Arad al-Zanadakha wal-Jahmiyyah attributed to Ahmed bin Hanbal, where the author does a very diligent job based on existing manuscripts of tracing the textual history of this work. Right. And he says it's, it's kind of, there are three texts that emerge in different contexts and they're kind of floating around and there's, they're stuck together in some of the manuscripts and different recensions. So, you know, these are kind of the challenges one has to bear in mind for, uh, you know, a scholar like Ibn Furat who may have had access to you know, different versions of texts. And um, and one of the, the, the things that Fozia does so well is uh, to kind of, uh, point out where Ibn al-Furat has been cited by later authors, you know, bearing in mind that most of the time this is without attribution. And uh, it's only through this kind of very careful philological work that one can get a sense of uh, the, 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 the celebrity and the, uh, that he enjoyed, if you like, among later Mamluk historians of, right. of, um, of the Fatimids. Especially, I mean, Ibn al-Furat, mostly we're talking about the, 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 the last century of Fatimid rule. I, I should I should point out. Um, I mean, uh, Jan Islam's question is quite long, and so it, it seems to have been split in two by Streamyard. So, 
um, you know, the first part we looked at and it ends with this uh, sort of, uh, you know, we know that people were generous in borrowing, so to speak, quotes and then and statements of other. So the second part of the question is and statements from others. One thinks of Thomas Jefferson copying John Locke. And um, I mean, I, I'm not as familiar with uh, sort of Jefferson and, and his engagement, but that would have been in a time when print existed. Um, so that's that's interesting. I mean, um, again, it takes a while for a serious culture of copyright to emerge. Um, yes, but, but you know, Soyuti was accused of plagiarism. He was right. accused of passing off works, you know, found in the Mahmoudiyah Library, which is the largest public library in, in this period, uh, in the Mamluks uh, domains. Uh, you know, finding works there, you know, writing right. his name. <laughs> what, what, what was what was at stake? I mean, what's at stake today is something very specific, which is um, you know the the monetary um, consequences of copying yeah. a text. Um, for the author and and in particular the publisher, because the publisher is the, usually the agent, the agent in the legal process. But what was at stake in that context? Because no one's making money per se out of this. It's just pure reputation. Uh, not as um, such. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, this this really deserves further study. It's yeah, not it does, it's yeah. not absolutely clear. I mean, partly it's about prestige. So in the rivalry between Ibn Hajar and Al Aini, you know, clearly and, and, you know, these are both commentaries on Bukhari that are, you know, highly intertextual and cite many, many sources and so on. Um, but at the same time, there is clearly originality, right, as well. Uh, however, however, we understand this concept, it was important to the authors. Ibn Hajar understood he was doing something uh, unusual and important, if you like. Um, yeah, I mean, I think our, our conceptions of originality um, are sort of very distinctive in the, um, you can say, post-Renaissance era, post-Enlightenment era. Um, and and they, the term originality has this kind of mystique around it, I think, in cultures. Um, but, uh, you know, you do have, uh, you know, notions of originality in, in poetry and even in sort of like Ijtihad and uh, there's, one thinks of... Um, even Al-Arabi, uh, Al-Qadi Abu Bakr, going to the sort of uh, Mashriq and gaining this knowledge and coming back to the Maghrib and saying that, you know, I've brought ulum that no one has, you know. Um, and uh, and so, that you know, there is that sort of um, recognition that uh, a type of originality is desirable. But I think there's a kind of uh, an importance to originality in, in, a, yes. in a modern Europe. But, but the, the, you know, the contours of the concepts themselves... Yeah. Plagiarism, originality, creativity—these um, these really do vary by by context. It's very very I, nice to see Sher uh, Ali Tareen, a good friend of both myself and I assume Omar. Yes. You know Sher Ali. Personally. Yes, and and we but, we, uh, we we discussed an episode in hopefully the near future, inshallah, on his excellent. Right. Absolutely. I mean, uh, we, we, we both uh, love your book and, uh, you know, we look forward to discussing it. But thank you very much, Sher Ali Tarin, for those who are on the podcast, uh, is kindly saying excellent podcast, great idea and discussion. Uh, many thanks to you, both of you. And yes. thank you, Sher uh, Ali. And, uh, and the, the new books in Islamic studies podcast, I, I enjoy tremendously. Absolutely. Of course. As a I, many other podcasts, I mean, where... Yeah. You could say there's an embarrassment of riches, particularly in the COVID era. Uh, I myself listen to many, whether it's the long-standing and well-known Ottoman study, uh, Ottoman history mm -hmm. podcast, or indeed um, new book, new books in Islamic studies, or the Abbasid history podcast, which is also mm -hmm. also very fun. So I do commend all of these 
uh, to our and, and we, we take inspiration from them for our own work at the end of, of the course. day. Um, yes. we, we have uh, come, you know, very much to the, uh, towards the end of our discussion. Um, I, I wonder if we should perhaps um, briefly discuss next week's um, uh, sort of uh, offering, inshallah. So, Amar, um, sure. if, if you could kindly, inshallah. Great. Uh, so next week, we will be looking at a very recent book, Salim Ibrahim's Woman and Gender in the Quran, uh, published by Oxford University Press yeah. with many um, uh, prestigious taqarid, if you like, from the likes of Marion Katz uh, and right. Karen Bauer. So definitely a book uh, that one should pay attention to. Uh, I, uh, I can see an important uh, question, by the way, from Iftikhar, yeah. uh, Dr. Iftikhar Malik of, of Bath Spa University. Okay, sure. I've got it on the screen. Please, uh, uh, I'll, I'll have a quick read of it um, for the podcast listeners. Um, in the case of Indian history, and for that matter, other such traditions, the European classification under ancient, medieval and modern is problematic. as They conflate with Hindu, Muslim, British phases. This is actually a point that's highlighted by uh, Fosia in the introduction. Yes. And thus induct a hostile communalism into scholarship. Do we see similar problems, uh, a similar problem with medieval uh, here and other studies um, that um, on that period in reference to other regions of the Islamic and we we neglected to highlight this but this is yes. a point that um, so yeah I mean Fosia does discuss excellently yeah. this problem of terminology yeah. so she generally yeah, exactly. prefers to refer to the middle period right I think right. In, in kind of Hudsonian sense and does discuss the problems with the idea of the medieval uh, in the in this in this Mamluk context, uh, but we're, we're kind of at the episode I, end of the episode. I, I wish uh, I had kind of focused more. Uh, so she she is kind of very interested in uh, questions of of genre of terminology and periodization, right. uh, which, as uh, Dr. Malik points out, do do have the tr tremendous implications for one's approach to the period. I mean, I always avoid the use of the word medieval because when we think mm -hmm. medieval, we think the quest for the Holy Grail of, of, uh, of Monty Python and uh, all kinds of problematic resonances right, right, uh, right. You know, associated with it. But thank you for this valuable point. And of course, in the Indian context, you know, even more, um, more problematic. Uh, but, but, I mean, if I can use this as an opportunity to highlight a problem that I kind of, I mean, it's not necessarily a problem in the context that I referred to, but I was saying that, you know, as Fosia points out, this um, early 14th century, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm using common era dates as well. That's also an indication of like uh, influence uh, from Europe. Oh. But early 14th century documentation of history um, on si such a massive scale has an impact on the way in which we read history, the way we perceive, you know, a field, so to speak. And, you know, European traditions of writing about the ancient, the medieval, the modern, um, you know, these are the things that we need to master in order to be recognized as scholars, and then they inevitably have these impacts on us. And I think, um, I, I'm sure uh, a scholar like um, uh, Dr. Malik is uh, probably speaking with a post-colonial hat on to a certain extent, that this, this is the, in a sense, the raison d'etre of efforts like post-colonialism and de decolonial um, thought, that how do we escape that um, Eurocentrism, in a sense, mm. that uh, embeds these traditions of thought. Yes, because you know, where does this category of the medieval, this periodization, ancient medieval, right. modern emerge from? Right. Where does it it's come the creation from? of 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 the Renaissance. You know, scholars like Petrarch, uh, 
uh, you know, diligent, diligent, uh, you know, uh, classicists, if you like. So it, it, it's really a self-designation that is the medieval and we are, we are the modern, uh, a very kind of self-congratulatory uh, designation, for sure. I, I'm, I'm very sorry that, I mean, uh, there are other very interesting questions coming. I should say it asks, you know, what are possible yes. alternative references, but, you know. I mean, Khaled Blankenship, by the way, has an interesting essay on, um, on periodization of Islamic history. I, I can post okay. the reference in the comments on in, in the comments on youtube afterwards so that would be wonderful but uh, thank you i said and and hebero is that uh, i assume zoom, uh, beaming in from turkey thank you very much for joining very kindly saying i enjoyed listening not my field but was enriched yes and, and it is an uh, enriched and uh, enriching book which i commend to, to our audience absolutely um, uh, we kind of, I, I kind of interrupted your introduction of Selina Ibrahim's book, so I, I think we should do it a little more justice, if that's all right, just to, so, you know, if you can um, hold it up again and, and, and yes. briefly sort of explain. Yeah. Uh, Women and Gender so, in the Quran, yeah. uh, a very comprehensive study, uh, judging from the bibliography. Right. Uh, and I just discovered, uh, teaching my Islamic law class, he has an excellent uh, encyclopedia of Islam yeah. three entry on menstruation. Hey, okay. uh, so that, that is uh, fantastic. Uh, certainly one I look forward to discussing with you all next weekend. It is a kind of comprehensive account of uh, women and gender in the Quran. It and and a kind of selfish, uh, selfish plug or a sort of self-promotion in a sense. Like she, she uh, is a graduate from the department I graduated from as well. Although she did her undergraduate there, I believe, and I, I, I did my postgraduate studies there. So she, she's a Princetonian like myself. Um, so I look forward to having a, another fellow Princetonian uh, in a week's time. And thank you all for joining. Thank you, of course, um, really my, my primary thanks goes to you, Amar, for diligently well, going yeah, through and these then, texts. And then from, uh, uh, of course, of course. I mean, um, the, the sort of the raison d'etre of this uh, entire episode is the, uh, the writings of the great scholars uh, whose books we are engaging. And so... Um, I, I've, in a sense, engaged Fosia on some of these ideas going back more than a decade from when she was doing her PhD in the department where I was an undergraduate at the time. And so, um, you know, it's, it's just an honor to be able to read her book and to engage it and engage it with so many wonderful scholars joining. Thank you again. And uh, with that, we'll see you in a week's time, inshallah. Take care. Thank you very much.